Before we start the podcast, I wonder if you've discovered The Letter from Loring Park, our weekly email bundle of goodness that lands in your inbox every Saturday morning. We highlight what we're airing and writing and reading, along with news of upcoming events and opportunities to be part of our wider conversations. To subscribe now, go to onbeing.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. In the aftermath of America's cathartic 2016 election, The New Yorker collected a series of 16 reflections by varied authors. The one that most riveted me was by the Pulitzer Prize-winning Dominican-American author Juno Diaz. His essay was titled, Radical Hope is Our Best Weapon. Diaz's hope is fiercely reality-based, a product of centuries lodged in his body of African-Caribbean suffering, survival, and genius. I can truly say that no conversation I've had in all my years has felt more searing, important, and eloquent than this one. I'm a child of blackness. Blackness was not meant to survive, and we have survived. We have thrived, and we've given this world more genius than we have ever received. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Juno Diaz is a professor of writing at MIT, and he's the fiction editor of Boston Review. His books include Drown, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and This Is How You Lose Her. Your family came from the Dominican Republic when you were six years old. And that place and the New Jersey you landed in are both hugely formative and that'll come through all the way through your writing and your work. I, I always ask this question when I start my interviews, whoever I'm talking with, um, about the religious or spiritual background of their childhood. And I'm really curious. I've never heard you speak overtly about this, and I do understand spiritual expansively. So, I mean, how, how would you describe the spiritual background of your childhood? The Caribbean, first and foremost— this is a site of empire and a site of the kind of starting point of New World slavery and uh, all of the inhumanities and hmm. survival responses that that produced. And among those sort of syncretic reactions was the religious universe in which I grew up. Yeah a universe ostensibly Catholic, but which was shot through, sort of subsumed in an Africanized New World cosmology. Yeah, the the spirits that, who kind of live inside the saints, right? The, the Catholic saints. Um, yeah, where <laughs> the, the saints are simply the masks. Right, exactly. Yeah, or hidden by the saints. Do you, there's this word that you use at the beginning of um, the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow, the fuku, mm. curse and doom of the new world. There's this line you have, it's it's perfectly fine if you don't believe in these superstitions because no matter what you believe, fuku believes in you. <laughs> I mean, it was more that it was in everything and in everyone 
and it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it was the kind of force that bound us all together. Yeah. Um, it saturated so much of the culture. And uh, it was important those first six years for me in the Dominican Republic because I, I got access to worlds that I would not have had access to mm. um, had I been only raised in the United States. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, I, I still remember being very young and that there was a a family member who was one of these people who was believed to be a medium. In other words, that whenever she heard certain kinds of music or certain kinds of drums, that she would become possessed, se monto. Mm -hmm. And by being possessed, she would uh, become a medium for um, these numinous entities who seem to have great interest in human affairs and would speak, they would speak through her. And I still remember as a child uh, being overwhelmed and astonished uh, by that experience, by having a family member who out of nowhere seemed to become someone else yeah. and speak not only with a different register of voice, but with um, from a different realm of experience. And, you know, that's not anything that you as a child uh, easily sort of explain away or put behind, you know, yeah. thin screens of rationalizations. That provoked an open mystery in me that uh, I don't think has ever closed. Hmm. And uh, it mattered to me because I, I realized that I was growing up with the entire spectrum, you know, um, of epistemologies and ontologies of folks. I had folks who were incredibly um, empirical, people who had no religious beliefs. And then there were other family members who were deeply invested in this numinous universe. And having them all simultaneously, and in many cases, uh, you know, hybridizing even the two extremes between the you know, absolute empirical and the numinous, yeah. that, that, was, uh, that was, you know, my foundational experience. And living all that simultaneously, it gave me a lot of room to think and a lot of room for how to be. Hmm. How do you think that shapes you as an artist, your artistic imagination, even when so much of your of your storytelling is very carnal, right? I still, I don't think of these things as uh, in opposition to each other. No, and I, I would remind us that coming from a reality where our oppression was ineluctably linked to our bodies, yeah. that we had for centuries no rights to our bodies, and that... All of the traditional pleasures and all of the traditional freedoms of human agency yeah. were forbidden to those of us of African descent in the New World for a long period of time. The body in such a murderous regime under such nightmarish conditions becomes chapel, cathedral, dogma, hmm. it becomes nearly everything. 
And so certainly it took a bunch of work for Western theologians to uh, create sort of intellectual and to argue the, the sort of philosophical bridges between mind and body, but or between the sacred and the material, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But in the new world, for those of us of African descent, um, we were living centuries ahead hmm. in our bodies. We were philosophizing centuries ahead of how bodies exist within, through, and alongside the numinous. And I, I, I have to tell you that um, for people like us, for people who come out of the African diaspora in the New World, simply to fall in love when you have historically been denied love, mm-hmm. the right to just connect mm-hmm. to the body which you have chosen and that has chosen you, means that an act of love is not only revolutionary, it's not only transcendent, but it is the deific, it is godlike, it is a taste of the omnipotent. Tippett, and this is On Being, today with writer Juno Diaz. You know, one thing you said that struck me, you said to another interviewer, I spoke silence better than I spoke English or Spanish. That there was an aspect of your childhood that was about the keeping of secrets, the holding of one's tongue, which I think is an aspect of life and childhood, but for you, it's also connected to the particularities of your childhood and the immigrant experience in your family, and that that was connected to you wanting to become a write, an artist, a writer, a breaker of silence. Certainly, but I, I would argue that it's deeper, yeah? Mm-hmm. On one mm-hmm. level, silence was a priceless survival strategy for those mm-hmm. of us right. coming out of a dictatorship uh, in a post-dictatorship society that had not yet undone the work of that dictatorship. Um, You know, in the long afterlife of dictatorship, uh, silence was invaluable. Um, Holding your counsel, not allowing people to uh, know what you were really thinking, uh, that permitted for many, many families and many, many community, permitted survival. Take it one level deeper. And when we're thinking about the numinous, when we're thinking about the sacred, it always asks us to move more deeply, yeah. to head t- towards the depths. Uh, when one considers um, the deeper histories where those of us who emerge from, you know, the sort of social death of slavery, um, from that uh, ontological precarity of slavery, there's also the fact that... Um, Silence is not just our inheritance, but it's also a methodology. It's a way of understanding that even though we've become free by law, uh, the reality is that we still, those of us of African descent, live under a terrible, terrible 
precarity that is directly predicated on the original crime of slavery, Mm -hmm. that the racial regime of the West uh, means that for those of us of African descent, that being able to use secrecy, being able to use silence was a important counter strategy. And so you're in all of these things. All of this is about you. And um, you see it playing out. And then, of course, one, one immigrates. And another layer of mm. what are the secrets, what can be said, um, begin to unfold. Because now you're in the procedural bureaucratic precarity of being an immigrant from a father who comes over illegal. The concern that you might say something that could end up jeopardizing your family and end up, um, you know, plunging you into difficulties. Uh, This also becomes a concern. And all of these together, uh, some of these uh, realms, I think, more intangible, more subtle, others more immediate and uh, acknowledged. But all of these realms come together uh, to form, uh, you know, this idiom of silence, which I feel I'm most fluent in. You feel that still? Still. more Most fluent in, this, in the idiom of silence. Still. Mm. Nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. What, what about this last few months has encouraged anyone who's an immigrant or anyone of African descent um, or anyone who uh, has emerged from an authoritarian society to say, aha, this is something now we're transcending. This is something we're distancing ourselves. It is behind us. If anything has been revealed in the last few months is that these strategies continue to be relevant because we have not undone the nightmares that we've inflicted on this world during this new world project. Yeah. I want to, let's talk about, um, I've been reading you for a long time and and then really um, knew that I, I really wanted to talk now after... Um, the New Yorker collected a series of pieces in November 2016 um, called Aftermath, 16 Writers on Trump's America. Um, the piece you wrote as part of that was striking in many ways. And and just, you know, I think, you know, one thing that was interesting is other, the titles of the other essays were, you know, had words in them like denial, bullying, dystopia, protest, opposition, um, words that have become um, kind of vivid in the way we use language um, in these months. You know, yours was titled Radical Hope is Our Best Weapon. And obviously, you know, uh, months have passed since then. Uh, the world is progressing. But I I want to just kind of dive into that, um, what you were saying, how you're seeing this moment, how you're responding. And I guess one thing that really struck me about, I could imagine somebody looking at that title, Radical Hope, and thinking that this was, um, you know, optimistic, fanciful. It's very reality-based, right? I mean, you, you you know, one of your lines was, let's be real. We always knew this shit wasn't going to be easy. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's important to remember that we can parse the we and this shit many different ways. Certainly, mm-hmm. I was speaking to a, a very specific audience um, in that piece, and I'm glad that other folks uh, resonated. They felt uh, attunement. But look, I mean, when we think about the state of the world, when we think about where we're at, Trump is the latest awful, awful turn. But more than anything, the world has been in an awful state for a long time. But I would not say that, um, you know, that this is a different order of madness. I think it's... It is a sharpening of the already present madness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's continuous and, uh, with what's been happening for a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that um, it's a lot more familiar than right. we would like to admit. But ultimately, the question is, uh, what kind of uh, effective philosophical, political stance are we going to take mm-hmm. when facing these recent inclemencies. And I understand, I understand when one gets walloped that uh, it is natural to um, get negative, it is natural to become dysregulated, it is natural to become catastrophic. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I pass through these every day and under less challenging um, pressures. But ultimately, the question really is for all of us, is that what, what's at stake, what have we accomplished to date, and what does that accomplishment to date reveal? What mandates does it give? It is very important to regroup and, you know, to reflect, to strategize, because even though I'm saying, okay, yeah, we've seen this before, it doesn't mean that things aren't new. Mm-hmm. And that introspection and strategizing and new forms of solidarity aren't required. Uh, that's that's not what I mean. To point out that there's continuities is not to deny that there's uh, new and novel aspects right, to right. this present terror. But ultimately, there's questions about how are you conceptualizing this um, this challenge? Are you conceptualizing it only in the short term? So is our entire kind of parameters Obama? Yeah, right. In other words, is that it? Is that it's, it's, oh, compared to Obama, that this is such a nightmare that we're doomed? I mean, that doesn't allow you much room, but yeah. it also leaves out so much complexity and so many accomplishments. And for me to remind you know, myself and certainly my interlocutors in that piece of how much has been accomplished under worse odds. Right, right. So much of what we're up against now is, after all, familiar, but part of the dynamic now is that it is familiar to some and not to others, right? It has been familiar to some and not to others, even through the Obama presidency how do you respond to people who say, you know, a primary thing that has changed now is simply that this is all out on the surface, this dysfunction that still existed, these these chasms? Well, I mean, one always returns to that Lenin formulation, right? That uh, 
there are contradictions in society, and the same contradiction for some people is not antagonistic, and for others, it's antagonistic. The United States has been an engine of white supremacy since its formation and continues to be so. And I think that um, for many people, white supremacy was a non-antagonistic contradiction. They would say, okay, yeah, this thing sucks, but, you know, I don't really have the energy or the time to do much about it. And for many of us who are the victims, the direct victims of white supremacy, um, for us, it has been an antagonistic contradiction for a very long time. And one of the things that has happened, of course, is that the the sort of the line that divided folks who thought white supremacy and all the kind of just garbage that Trump represents was non-antagonistic uh, from the people who thought it was antagonistic. I think that line has moved. That needle has moved. More people now find this to be an antagonistic contradiction they did before. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not insignificant. Right. And so is that in a sense kind of this paradoxical good or this possibility of this moment? Well, we'll see. Yeah. I'm Again, I, I think that commitments play themselves out over the long term. Yeah. You'd be amazed how people get riled up about things uh, and then you know slip back into the comfort right. of their historical privileges and their historical aporias. Again, I think that uh, it would take a lot, a lot to awaken those who have feasted well on our hegemonic structures. It'll take a lot to awaken them to the actual cannibal horror in which they partake. And I'm perhaps Trump is enough. I'm not sure. The only way that we'll be able to know is over the long term. Listen again and share this conversation with Juno Diaz through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with writer Juno Diaz on altering the calculus of hope— He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of fiction, born in Santa Domingo and raised in New Jersey. We're talking in part about his essay, Radical Hope is Our Best Weapon, commissioned by The New Yorker in the face of a changed political landscape. In this New Yorker essay, when you you ask the question, so what now? And you, you say, first and foremost, we need to feel. And I want to talk about what you're saying there. There's a lot of complexity to uh, what look what might look like a, s- a simple sentence. Um, we don't actually we do outrage really well in America, which is I mean that we've we've done. There's a lot of that, but these other more complex feelings that will take us to other places. Uh, I, I think you're kind of pointing at how we don't necessarily know how to do that whole range. 
Well, some people do. I mean, some people do. Yeah, but I mean, in public life, do. what we what we reward in public life, no, what we make space for, dinks. Yeah, our public life is like, you know, is like a deranged three year old, and I wouldn't <laughs> want to offend deranged <laughs> three year olds. Right, right. But it's itself. You know. <laughs> well, certainly. I mean, look, um, we are not a culture that has built in to our way of being, our way of thinking, our civic imaginaries, uh, contemplation, mourning, right, working through difficult, contradictory emotions. That's not part of our society. And therefore, where society leaves off, we need to take up. Society miseducates us. Society gives us a lot of prompts and a lot of encouragement um, to be reactive, emotionally reactive. Right. And this, we have received tremendous tutelage. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the ability to do what our societies seem incapable and unwilling to do is important. Yeah. Uh, it's incumbent upon us to, to be reflective, to be complex, to be subtle to be nuanced, to take our time in societies which are none of these things and which encourage none of these things. Yeah. Because after all, yeah, after all, there is nothing, I would argue, more critical than to be misaligned from the, with the emotional baseline of any mainstream society. So to be misaligned is a virtue. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> misaligned to hegemonic uh, emotional yeah. uh, frameworks? Hell yes. Misaligned with what is unhealthy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hell yeah. I mean, one of the things you've done that uh, has been very powerful and also maybe a piece of silence you've broken is as a man and as a Dominican man, you've talked about vulnerability, which you know, could seem certainly is very complex in the context that you described of, um, you know, this new world experience of having to struggle to survive, to have agency. And you, you've you talked about, you know, your your father was, you know, militaristic, uh, that you, the, the boys in your family were beneficiaries of this, of this patriarchal, Ethos, which was inherited from the larger culture, um, but that you experience yourself to be a victim as much as a beneficiary of that. I mean, the fact is that's also this the ethos of of American culture, and I think these 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 qualities you just named that we we ha- would have to learn to exercise in public to actually change of contemplation of mourning, of letting in complexity and subtlety. Um, those are acts of vulnerability. And vulnerability is the precondition to contact. Yeah, right. You can form no intimacy without vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, you know, how many of us are in intimate relationships where we have incomplete vulnerability? We ourselves are not completely in because we're not completely vulnerable and therefore we have emaciated the opportunity afforded by these relationships. 
And so this also becomes implicated in the social cost or the social symptom of, of the dysfunction we have of our isolation from each other, our distance from each other, the fact that we do not know, <laughs> we do not know our fellow Americans. We don't even seem to feel that we have the same experiences. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot at work there, right? Yeah. First, we were starting with the, the subject of masculinity, yeah. um, you know, and certain kinds of ways that masculinity um, enshrines and um, in some ways super valorizes the ideal of the invulnerable male subject. I mean, that's, that's a big part of the sort of what we would call hegemonic masculinity, that one is not vulnerable, that one is not penetrated, that one has a narrative where intimacy uh, is not necessary. Yeah. And when you look at the, the sort of the strictures, when you look at the, the kind of the rules of traditional masculinity, it's all about creating an inhuman, someone who is an all inhuman. surfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an inhuman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Someone who's all surfaces and has no uh, innards, has no interiority. Yeah. And doesn't require community, doesn't require intimacy, doesn't require, you know, family. And uh, I think I don't need to explain that to any woman. We've been dealing with the fallout of that utter nonsense for centuries and how the work, the terrible damage it does to young people, to families, to communities. You know, there's a larger question, of course, about how all this stuff plays out on communities. When we're Now yeah. we're reaching up to the community level. Yeah. We're also talking about the way that our current economic system, the way this stage of capitalism, neoliberalism, how it has destroyed the what we would call the public good, the public commons. Ideals of the civic, ideals of the social, altruism, all of these delicate, invaluable virtues are being sacrificed over the pagan stone of neoliberalism's obsession with market. Yeah. And again, not to do a disservice to pagans. Pagans are... You know, there's a messed up metaphor, but it's just a cruel, cruel economic system in which we live. And one that has made people deeply afraid of their neighbors. One that has institutionalized um, a certain cynicism, a certain suspicion about our fellow person. Yeah, and a utilitarianism about... Yeah, and it just, but also just mm-hmm. a, a kind of a, a cruel pessimism. Yeah. Yeah, that um, everyone is a criminal on the make, and that the only thing that you can trust is the individual. Uh, that's whew, that again is say, taking that logic of a person who has no need for intimacies, no need for a family, no need for community. Uh, to its kind of most extreme form. And there's no accident that white supremacy and its masculine forms come together in our economic system to produce 
this kind of logic. And the political corollaries, I mean, you're, this is it's, it's what you're talking about, but, you know, this way large external accomplishment is glorified and that's the only thing we measure and that interior life kind of became optional to success and that kind of as a, it reflected in our national politics kind of on steroids at the present. Yeah, I mean, ours is a cannibal logic. We reward those who can devour the most. You can devour the most market because you're the number one musician, reward them. You have Mm -hmm. sold the most tickets, you've devoured the most space, the most screens, reward them. Uh, I mean, it's it's terrifying when you think about it because it's this logic of hyper-consumption. Our political economic systems have destabilized the planet and the planet is going to continue to unravel and the consequences of unraveling are going to play out in people's bodies and in where they decide to move those bodies. And how all of our national elites deal with that reality, I think, is the number one. And how we're all going to deal with these realities is the great challenge facing us. Um, And in some ways, I think it's something that uh, is going to be the great test of whether we, as a collective will have any future worth speaking of. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with writer Juno Diaz. You know, I hear you in this conversation and in in other words you've spoken and written, um, always bringing that kind of large aspiration and challenge also back to the matter of intimacy and love. I mean, somewhere you said that the quintessential American narrative is the quest for home, and and that, but that's not just about shelter. It's about intimacy. It's about love. I mean, are those, as you think about walking through this American moment and, and expansively having a large view of time, long view of time in this long-term project we're in, I mean, how do you, is love a word that enters your imagination, that enters your conversations these days? And what, what can that mean? Well, of course. I mean, what, what are we in this game if not for love? <laughs> I, I can't speak to anyone else, but... Uh, if, you're, if someone tells me there's no love in the universe, I'm, I'm, what interest is there in the universe then? What's interesting about the universe? Yeah. And for me, perhaps overly simplistically or perhaps overly sentimentally, love matters. I do believe that human beings are, without question, social creatures. Our biology seems to dictate that. But I would also say that Um, there is a challenge in being human that we have vulnerable needs, but we also have minds that can deceive us that 
these needs are unimportant. And for many of us, to be able to trust somebody else, to be able to have faith that someone else or that the future, yeah, or that the community um, can take care of us, that we will not be destroyed when we lower our defenses. Uh, For many of us, that's a challenge. And yet, you can't have any kind of love, whether we're talking about civic love or we're talking about interpersonal love, without first dropping those defenses, without first making yourself vulnerable. I mean, ultimately, when you look at it, you don't want to be too simplistic. um, But, you know, the nature of having these chats is you oversimplify. But when you think about it, um, look at the whole debate around climate change. The whole debate around climate change Mm. is a bunch of lying fools sitting around, almost all male, uh, but whatever, a bunch of lying fools saying the earth is not vulnerable. Hmm. There is no injury. Hmm. And it, there's just a repetition here. There's this mantra that comes out of these hegemonies, which is we're invulnerable, we're not vulnerable, there is no loss, we don't need to change anything. That just is it's just destroying us, man. Hmm. And it's so dull and wearying, and yet we're all caught up in this madness simply because of our pride, our inability to be like, hey, man, that hurts. Hey, man, that's scary. Hey, sister, that's humiliating. So the language of radical hope, um, you're also drawing on Jonathan Lear in his piece you wrote for The New Yorker. I mean, you said, but all, all the fighting in the world will not help us if we do not also have hope, which is not blind optimism, but radical hope. Talk about uh, what that is um, and how you find yourself living that now. Well, it depends how you constitute your community. Mm-hmm. How do you constitute your community? I... I I'm not I'm not so arrogant that I only constitute my community um, in sort of a very narrow, selected way. When I constitute my community, I think in a generative way where I include the people who come before me and I include the possibility of the people who come after me, that opens up a lot more room and a lot more space. If your community is no further than your injury, then it doesn't seem like any agency is possible. Hmm. But if your community extends more generously, more capaciously, well, certainly there's a lot of grounds for hope there just by the way you framed your history, your reality. Framing is as important as anything. Yeah. And so when I include my grandparents who didn't have one-tenth of what I had, and yet who labored superheroically. When I include my great-great-grandparents who lived on the sort of the edge of these explantation systems and were at any moment at the danger of the violences and the politics of these explantation systems, and yet they labored superheroically 
towards a better life, when I include them in what I consider my community or my compass um, of thinking and of being and of feeling, possibilities open that might not have been there if my gauge was very narrow. Mm-hmm. If the today, the last few months, or the Trump administration is all you got, it sure looks bleak. Right. But when I right. think about me, when I think about my family, hey, I always say this, but it's true. People used to own me. White people used to own bodies like mine. And when I look at what my community has done, to change that, when I look at what my community has done to make democracy possible, when I look at what my community has taught this world about justice and about humanity in the face of abysmal inhumanities, well, <laughs> i got to tell you, that alters the calculus of hope. Yeah. And it gives me hope. Are you experiencing and so so in the spirit of what you're saying and I'm so with you about having a long view of time uh, as a resource uh, I mean as a necessity um, even to be reality based um, so it's just a handful of time since November 2016 to now but are, do you experience uh, conversations imaginations opening in a way that is consonant with with that hope that is do you do you feel generative energy i'm it's not a again this isn't coming from trump this is mm-hmm. coming from what we have survived and overcome yeah so so it right in other words okay. my yeah my love of life my belief and faith in my people's liberation doesn't come from the obstacles that hegemonic formations throw up. It comes from my ancestry, from my communities. And therefore, yeah, there's an obstacle in front of us. (laughs) We've seen these before. Might be a bit terrifying, might be a bit unusual, might be a bit new. Uh, But onward we go. We have broken every chain this society has tried to throw around our necks. They don't stop trying. Mm-hmm. We will break them again. Mm-hmm. I uh, this is um, really big and wonderful, and I I I just maybe want to kind of finish. But before I do, um, <laughs> I, I want to take a slight diversion, which I don't think is completely a diversion. Which is your love of science fiction and the way science fiction is in your fiction and I, I also love science fiction and you know my story is not your story but I grew up in a very small town and went to Brown which was like going to a different planet and you came from uh, Santa Domingo to central New Jersey it was like a different planet and for the very first time when I was reading you and the science fiction references keep jumping out at me including fear is the mind killer it occurred to me that science fiction is there for people who change worlds? What did you say a little while ago? That you were talking also about that numinous world, that, you know, this sense that there are many worlds within the world. Um, I just kind of wanted to note that. I mean, <laughs> and it's not an escape. It's actually 
revealing or kind of opening your imagination to um, vast cosmic possibilities that aren't immediately reflected in the world around you. Yeah, well, it could be an escape, but I, I do find science fiction to be, for me, has been an excellent literary technology uh, for understanding our many worlds, yeah. for understanding what's been disavowed about our societies, for understanding our political and conscious unconscious. Um, it's really science fiction is really good to think, man. Yeah. And for some folks, they just that the aliens and all the stuff about otherness is just you know surface titillation. Uh, for others of us, it becomes uh, a source for theorizing about real world alterity and uh, alternate possibilities. And that's the way I kind of reacted to science fiction in some ways. Right, right. For me, science fiction offered the possibility of uh, different ways of being and of ways of possibly overcoming the cage that surrounded us. Yeah, and another um, reference that I feel is kind of in the ether right now is this Whitman line of, I contain multitudes. It's come up a lot lately, and you invoke that in the context of a question about what is America, that there are these multiple Americas. I wonder how your long view of time, your rootedness in the whole sweep of history of your ancestors, of your people, as the ground on which you stand in the present, how that speaks to you about um, multiple Americas and how to live with this generatively. No, I mean, shoot. It's a, it's a question that has uh, bedeviled the new world and bedeviled <laughs> societies for a long time. Mm-hmm, I mean, shoot, mm-hmm. we've, got the, we've got the Babel myth at the heart of the, the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea that uh, God, uh, you know, struck down humans by making them more diverse. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Only a kind of obsessive monoculture would think that's a terrible thing. <laughs> Um, but, you know, so it goes. I just, when I think about, when I think about what is required for all of us to live on this planet, um, it's going to be the kinds of solidarities and the kinds of civic imaginaries and the kinds of um, radical tolerances that we are not seeing. We're going to have to practice a democracy that... Um, We've yet to define or even lay down the first four bricks of. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about our impoverished political systems, our imagined communities that is going to be able to hold us together um, in the face of the coming storm of climate change. We need a lot more than we have. And the fact that so many of us are scared by our multiplicity, shows you how much work we have to do. (laughs) Our multiplicity is our damn strength. Mm -hmm. There's no getting around it. People want to make it the the danger. People want to make it the problem. Uh, No, it's only going to be the problem if we don't make it our strength. And, you know, you don't want to be so, you know, fantastically reductive, but really, you know... At an operational level, it's really what it comes down to. 
You know, either we're going to embrace humanity and figure out how we can all live together and work together to overcome the damage that certain sectors of us have inflicted on the planet, or we're not. And, you know, I for one think eventually, you know, there's, I don't trust our politicians. I don't trust our mainstream religious figures. I don't trust our um, business leaders. I don't trust any of the sort of folks who've already have power and have already shown us how little they can do for us. And they're showing us their cowardice and their avarice. I don't trust any of those people. But I do trust in the collective genius of all the people who have survived these wicked systems. Hmm. I trust in that. I think from the bottom will the genius come that makes our ability to live with each other possible. I believe that with all my heart. Right. It's it's the life together that we have to figure out. Not, we don't have to solve multiplicity. Um, yeah, well, I mean, mm-hmm. we've certainly got to stop, stop this absurd paradigm of, you know, that this thing is a problem. This is yeah, reality. Right, right, right. We're not going to wish away this. So right. let's cut it out. There's this. Um, I, lo- I love this. I love these sentences in that that piece in the New Yorker. Time to face this hard new world. To return to the great shining work of our people. Darkness, after all, is breaking. A new day has come. It's a wonderful image. It's the truth. Yeah, and and counterintuitive as reality is counterintuitive. To the, to the intuition we've been taught that is not actually training us in reality. I'm a child of blackness. Blackness was not meant to survive, and we have survived. We have thrived, and we've given this world more genius than we have ever received. Juno Diaz is the fiction editor at Boston Review and the Rudge and Nancy Allen Professor of Writing at MIT. His books include Drown, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and This Is How You Lose Her. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, Malka Fenevesi, and Aaron Farrell. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. 
On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.